to a section of Scripture that is a strange story, Genesis 22. When you look at the picture, what story does it, what's the, what's the caption? Do you remember what the story is all about? It's Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham's doing what? Okay, he's sacrificing his son. Looks like he's ready to kill him. Let me ask a question that goes over. Are there any details in this story? From what you know, we haven't read it yet. Are there any details in the story that surprise you or startle you? When you read it through that, you look and go, what's that all about? Anything that comes out of that story? Or does it seem like it's just very normal? What's abnormal? Uh, attempting to kill a son. Okay. Anything else? God telling him to kill his son. Okay, going on top of it. Yes, ma'am. We will go up, sacrifice, and we will come, and he uses the plural, we will come again. Yeah, so does it start to you that Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else strike you unusual about the story? Isaac's. Does it, does, do you ever look and go, Isaac did nothing? Okay, seriously, did your kids ever fight with you when you wanted to discipline them? Did they ever put up any kind of a struggle? Or were they only my four that did that? Okay, that it was like, hold still. You know? And there's no indication. There's no indication in the text. So many people assume that Isaac's just a small kid. Isaac is already by this point, if we have the dating right, he's 15 to 20 years old. So... He's a teenager who lets his dad tie him up and lay him on an altar. That startles me. Okay. That surprises me. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you ever wondered what's behind the story that's not there? What did he tell Sarah he was going to do? That he was going to go away. And, you know, but again, it goes back to what she said if he believed the son was going to come back. But... Uh, yeah, I killed him and he raised again. Yeah. There's a whole lot in this story that just, it just strikes me odd because it's not our, part of it is not our culture. I would think, this is me, I would think the part that really throws me for a loop when I first read it the first few times is God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's that fact alone. You know, why would God do that? Especially when the scripture says God does not tempt anyone to sin so how how do we explain that here let, let's do our study this way okay let's jump to the end and then we'll come back what do you think you know the story generally what do you think is the main lesson that god moses is the author that god had moses record this story so we could walk away with something what is the something we're to walk away with obedience is that what you said same thing obedience anything else pardon me Faith? Okay. Let's, uh, let's uh, dissect the story just briefly, okay? Since you know most of it already, let's just, again, let's get some of the details and put them in perspective. If you go through Abraham's life, which we've been doing, Abraham has four major tests that take place. The first one is back in Genesis 12 that we already talked about. God basically saying, I want you to move. I want you to leave that fertile area, the, the, the fertile crescent, and I want you to move to an area that I have yet to tell you where it's going. I just want you to head west, young man. Head west. Young man, 70 years old. I want you to head west, and I'm going to tell you when to stop. And so he has to leave and understand this is a totally different culture than you and I. 
most people didn't travel far from home back then. It's not like we are now. Some of us are from different parts of the country. Our relatives live a long distance away. They didn't do that. And God says, I want you to leave your home and move, and you're leaving everything, the home of your, your ancestral home, your relatives. Then in chapters 13 and 14, he gives them another big test. There's one relative with you. I want you to separate from that one relative. So you're basically, now you're really all alone, and that was when he and Lot departed. Chapters 15 through 21, I want you to patiently wait for the son, this special son that I'm promising you. I, um, Abraham debated, okay, is that son one I adopt through Ishmael, is that, or Eliezer, or is it one that I get through a surrogate mother that was Ishmael? And so he's saying, no, 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 you wait for the one that's going to be birthed to you and Sarah in particular. Then in chapter 22 is the fourth biggest test, or fourth major test. I think this is the biggest one. When he says, okay, now I want you, after you've done all this, I want you to sacrifice this very son. And the story is incredible. And if we break it down, let's just do it this way as your notes have it. Let's talk about the request. Let's talk what God asked him to do. It starts off in chapter 22, and the key words are seen in the first few verses. It came to pass after these things that God did, what's your Bible read? Test. Does anybody have a different word than test? I have tempt. Anybody have a different word than tempt or test? Okay, same thing, same concept. Did God, God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he says, Take now thy son, thine only son, emphasis upon which one it is, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Now I'm going to go back to verse 1 when we talk about that idea, where in my, the Bible I'm using, it says God did tempt him. When we think tempt, do we think something good or something bad? Okay, usually we think of temptation to sin. And so we have to understand, first of all, when we talk about this test, that it was not a temptation to sin. The Hebrew word that is used here is not a word that's used for temptation to sin. It's the idea of trying. It is something of purifying. It is the idea of putting, putting a piece of metal, a rock, into a test uh, or into fire so that it would, it would melt and they could get the dross off. And so this is a purification process. This is a testing that is by God's design to do what for Abraham? Make him better or make him do bad? It's to make him better. Okay, and so it's very clear that that's the idea. The test comes when Abraham, things are going pretty good. Now we talked about this last week. There's some bickerings there at Beersheba, but overall, things have gone pretty good. We're talking probably around, like I said, 15 years after chapters 20 and 21. Things are going well. Things are peaceful. His family's doing well. He's prosperous. And there's not been any major problems going. And then all of a sudden, this test comes, and it's very severe. When it says in verse 1 that God did tempt him, in the Hebrew, it's a pe'el verb. That means to test with great with great earnestness. It's the idea of not just have a test, but a test concept. And that's the way the Hebrew would bring it out very clearly. This is a very strong, very severe type of testing that God gives to his life. Now you think about it from a practical point of view. If you were to say, okay, I know it's a severe test from the language that is used, why would it be so severe for Abraham? Well, the obvious one is you're asking him to kill a son. Anything else to add to that? It's the covenant son. Anything else you want to add to that? He loves him dearly. God even points out that your only son, the son that you love. Anything else to add to this? 
Okay? Well, they, he does. What, what happened to his other son? Fifteen years ago, what's happened to his other son that he was, uh, he was attached to? He was sent away. And so this is, you know, he's already had to say goodbye to one son. Now he's having to say so long, farewell to another son by what God's asking him. So this is really, really a serious, serious test. God, he waited for 30 years for this boy. And he's watched him grow for 15 to 20 years. And he's enjoying the blessing. He's enjoying him, seeing him grow up. And all of a sudden God says, take him away, get rid of him. And so it's a, it's a real severe test and trial for him in that regard. As well as, Bob, you mentioned that he's the son of promise. He and Sarah are not going to have other kids by any natural event. Okay, this was already a miracle baby. Remember, all the people were congratulating them and laughing because Sarah had a baby in her old age. And so all the people in town were like, wow, this is amazing. And so this miracle child, this is it. And so to say, okay, take your son and get rid of him, this is a very severe request. Now, some will say this, and you'll pick up some Bible studies that you talk about. They say it really wasn't a physical test. It was a... Um, symbolic test, that he really wasn't asking him to physically sacrifice his son. He was asking him kind of to do what, um, um, her name escaped me just now, uh, Samuel's mother. Um, Hannah? Okay, that she brought him and she gave him to the temple, remember when he was about five years of age? And so some will say that's what God is basically saying. Give your son in a prayerful thing, like you did probably. When you had children, you knelt by their crib and you said, God, they're your child. And so this was a symbolic gesture and it really wasn't a sacrifice. God never intended to make a physical sacrifice, but rather just a verbal sacrifice, symbolic sacrifice of the son. And so that's one way to explain a way how could God ask this to be done. But how would you respond to that? How would you answer if this was not intended to be a physical sacrifice? Watch a few words that might stand out as we read the next verses where he says, uh, verse 2, offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I would tell you. Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled the ass, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, clave the wood for the burnt offering, rose up, went into the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, lifted up his eyes, saw the place afar off, and he said to the young men, Abide here, I and the land will go, lad will go yonder and worship and come again. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went up, both of them together. Anything stand out in what I just read that you would say it was a physical intent? It wasn't just a mere prayerful, symbolic sacrifice. There was real physical intent to kill the boy. Okay, you got a knife? You got the wood for a fire. You got, you got an altar there. By the way, the word that is used here, the word for Ola, when he says a burnt offering, the word literally has the idea to go up and smoke. Okay? So this was a physical, God's intent, God's asking him is taking real stuff for a real sacrifice, not just a symbolic act. In fact, there's a rope, and he ties the boy up and puts him on the altar. This was, everything was physical. And so... He even at the verse 10, as you read on a little bit further, he's gone through the whole process. 
And they came to the place, it says in verse 9, which God had told him. He built the altar, laid the wood in order, bound his son, laid him on the altar, and he stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Every indication is the idea that his knife is raised, poised, ready to plunge into the boy and to put him to physical death, not a symbolic situation. And so God is giving him a real physical test, test of offering his son and besides, when it's all over, does God provide a real sacrifice? The ram is in the bushes thereby, and it's not just a symbolism. This is a real physical sacrifice intended from the beginning to the end. And so God is ordering him to slay his one son, to put him on the altar. Again, we have to answer that, but just think about this whole concept. There's a missionary that's in the uh, area of Ireland, working in the areas where it's kind of rural area, and talks about how when he got there, the village was in really, really sad state of affairs, and were, they were distraught over a recent incident that had happened in this coal mining village. And he relayed the story in one of his uh, messages that what happened is they were coming back from the coal mine and they would shuttle with a bus. And so all the coal, coal miners were riding on this bus. It was in the evening. There had been slight snow, sleet type thing. And they were going and coming back to the village. And as they headed back to the village, there was one hill that they would have to go over and then come into the village. And as they came up this one hill, it was pretty slick, and there's a curve on that hill. And the uh, one side, obviously, is the hill, couldn't go to any further to your left. And down the other side was now a steep embankment because it was right at the edge of the road. And so they come around the curve, and the bus driver notices, again, it's cloudy, it's, you know, some mist, and he noticed in his headlights there's a young kid in the road. And the young kid is walking with his back to the bus, and the bus driver has to make an instant decision. Do I keep on going and try to stop, and chances are of stopping without hitting the kid are well nigh do impossible? Or do I veer off, and if I veer off, I take all the men on the bus down, all the men, you know, all the sons and all the fathers of the village, and probably we would all die. The bus driver makes his choice. After he gets the bus stopped, he's the first one out of the bus to run back down the road and to pick up the body of that crumpled child. He's holding his son. He had to make a split-second choice. Abraham has to make a choice. Do I serve God or do I keep my son? What a horrible situation to be in. But God asked him to do that. Now we have to ask this question. How could our God, who is gracious and loving, put Abraham in that predicament? And you have to understand several things. Number one, this is God never tempts us to do evil. We may not understand fully how this all operates, but God does not tempt any man to sin. He did not put the fruit in the garden as a temptation to stumble Adam and Eve. That was never his intent. His intent was to protect them, to provide for them. What's ironic in this whole thing is God and Satan can use the same situations and come at two different angles. If we take the situation of Job, was Satan involved with Job's attacks? Yes, he was. Was God aware of what was happening. Yes, he was. God meant it for evil, I mean, for good, and Satan meant it for evil, okay? Joseph, the Old Testament, okay? His brothers are trying to do evil. They're trying to get rid of him. They wanted to kill him. They backed off. They'd make money out of it. They sold him. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for 
good. Okay, and so the same situations can be looked at at two different points of view. God is trying to make somebody better. Satan's trying to make somebody bitter and turn them away from the Lord. And so you have one of these scenarios that you can look at and say, okay, I don't understand all the technicalities of how this is working in the spiritual realm behind the scenes, but I know this. Our God never tempts us to sin. He may allow situations in our life that if we respond wrong, we will sin. But if we respond right, we will be commended for doing right. And so sometimes the answer isn't, why is it coming? The big question is, what am I supposed to do? No matter what the trouble, what the trial, the what is so important. And that's what happens here with Abraham. He has to look and say, okay, what am I supposed to do? Not why is this happening, but what am I supposed to do? You and I are going to ask, answer a little bit of, why does God do this? And some of that we can understand by going and keeping in view the whole big picture. Never in human history up to this point has there been a decree from God Almighty that it's been recorded in Scripture that outlawed human sacrifices. Okay, that's not, that doesn't come until later on in the, in the Bible. So up to this point, and again, you have a decadent society, but you don't have any revelation where you and I can look and say, okay, God had said, thou shalt not sacrifice a child. That has not been stated or prohibited up to this point. It will in a few generations. It will be clearly stated. And so that meant that what was going on at this time in human history, child sacrifice was very common amongst un- unbelievers. And so when in the society where Abraham is, and by the way, it continued all the way up to the book of Judges, did it not? We even talked about this in the last few weeks on Judges. Even hundreds of years later, what are they still doing in their Canaanite worship? They are still sacrificing children. And so it was a regular part of the, of the culture of that day that you, if you really loved your God, you may sacrifice one of your children. Now, again, think this through. It's not after you've been with that child for a while and you wouldn't mind doing something drastic. This is the idea that you might have a young infant or you might have a child that's been there for a while and you want to give your God the very best, you're going to give him your, usually your firstborn. And you're going to give that offspring. And so in that culture, that wasn't... That wasn't um, viewed the same way as it is from our point of view. 2017, reading this story, we are appalled by a lot of things that happen. We are appalled that, um, we'll go back a few weeks, that Lot would offer his daughters for the protection of, of those two men, strangers that he brought in the house. We are appalled that somebody would take his servant to bed to have a surrogate child. We are appalled by sacrificing, you know, make, signing on the dotted line by cutting animals in half and walking through the middle of it. That is against our cultural sensibilities. But back in those days, what God is asking Abraham to do, it was very, very common. And so he's asking Abraham basically to say, hey, listen, I want to know if you will do what your neighbors do for their deities. They're gods that are not gods. Do you love me as much as they who sacrifice their children? Now, in, the, in his thought process, does God know what's going to happen and how he's going to intervene? Sure. But what he's asking Abraham to do, basically, is to see if he really loves the Lord God the way so many others in this community are saying they love their deities. Do you love me as much as they love? You know, like, like Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Okay, and so the question is challenging 
You and I may not like that it came, but back in those days, this was a clear test in the culture, in the thought process of those people. And for Abraham, it wasn't as stunning as it is for you and me that God would ask such a thing. And so we have to keep in mind that this question that he's asking, will you, or this command, I should say, is really challenging. Let's make some observation about the test in general, about the way that God tests us, tries us at times. God's tests in our life are not always pleasant. They're not always painless. God puts you and me in situations sometimes that it is painful. There is a lot of agony. And the test is, Will you continue to believe and trust me in the middle of something that is very, very, very difficult? And it hurts. There is a loss. There is a challenge. There are attacks. There are criticisms. There are misunderstandings. There are mistruths being spoken. There is, there is having to give up some comfort. There is having to give up some people close to you. Or deal with a death or a loss. Those are painful, really difficult situations. They're tests. How you respond to them. He would, something else. These tests may seem inconsistent with the blessings at times. For instance, you, God graces you with a child. You know people that this has happened. A year, two, three, four years later, the child's taken. How is, you blessed me and then you took the child. You gave me a family member, and then the family member is taken away. That might seem inconsistent. That is difficult because that was a blessing. They were something that you looked at and said, a gift from God. But tests do do this at times. In fact, let's take it. Sometimes these tests go to our very prized possessions. Because God wants to know, do you love me more than you love these? You think about it. What are your prized possessions right now? Most of us would say some loved one, or we might say some possession that we really, really appreciate, something that we're really enjoying at this facet of our life. And God may test us in that regard. He may touch one of those really sensitive spots in our heart. Usually we say, God, you know, that happens to other people, but God wants to know where you and I stand. And so he may go for the very core of our affection. Love for, a fa for family members is not wrong. It's okay for you to love your son, Abraham, but I want to know, who do you love more? Who do you love more? And he's putting him, he's putting him to a, such a huge challenge. God always wants us to surrender to him what he has given to us. Everything that God has given to us is, how do we want to phrase this? On loan from God. We are mere what? Stewards. We are not owners. So we look and say, okay, yeah, there could be the situations where all of a sudden, for some of us, do you know, I'm thinking right now about the gal you just mentioned, prized possession, her health, the gift of healing that she enjoyed. Could that gift of healing continue? The answer is, sure. Might God in a test for her family, for others, that we don't understand where it's going. But could it be that God would say, I can take away that healing? And is he unjust if he were to take away a healing? Not at all. Not at all. And so there comes, the, there comes the rub that we say, okay, where do we go with this? By the way, these tests that can come really severe, they can keep on coming after years of service, after years of faithfulness. You and I somehow think that when we reach a certain point, whoosh, we've made it through. We raised the kids. 
It's done. There's no more tests because the kids were the test. And we'll, well, there'll be never any more problems. <laughs> okay. Like, a, yeah, the, the grandkids come. Yeah. <laughs> there's challenges. There's, there's difficulties. They come at, even after years of service. The only way to successfully face these tests is faith. I should qualify this. Obedient faith. Faith that acts out in obedience to the Word of God. That's the request. That's the situation. Here's what we've got that is amazing to me is another facet. The request startles me. The response startles me. And maybe that's the wrong word, but I am amazed by the way that Abraham responded. I admire Abraham. I am just, I, I, we can attack Abraham for making blunders and all the, the goofy things he did, lying twice about Sarah. Those, and we're not commending or saying that they're okay. But when you read this chapter and see what Abraham does, don't you have to take off your hat and say, wow, wow, what a man of faith. What an absolute man of faith. How he responds to it, he obeys. Now, when you're going to describe his obedience, look at the verses, okay? Take from verse 3, the very first phrase. Describe his obedience. Give me another word for he obeyed what? Instantly? Immediately? Because what did he do? He rose up early and he starts the trip. This would be the day I would sleep in. And pretend I didn't hear things from the night before. Now, none of you would ever do this, but I'm good at sometimes faking sleep so as not to face what's ahead. And so here he is, he rose up early, immediate response, immediate obedience. I, I'm going to put down with determination. His obedience was immediate, it was determined, uh, determination. And I get that from the idea that, you know, he's going to make this trip. He's going to take people with him. He's going to take the stuff with him. He takes the wood. He takes the knife. He takes the rope. He's got everything. He's traveling for three days. Me? Now, again, you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't do this, but I do. I would, in my mind, I would get lost in those three days. I'd feign I don't know where Mount Moriah is, and I can't figure it out, and I'm, I'm technically challenged, so I can't get my GPS to work. At this moment, I would come up with any excuse to avoid doing what he did. But it doesn't appear that way. He, he gets up, gets ready, and he's moving that direction for three days. He is determined to do this. Any of you travel three days straight? Okay. He's traveling three days straight. In those three days, I might get a pain in my back and say I can't go any further. Come up with some reason... And then he gets to the mountain and he said, why, by the way, why do you think he tells the two young men to stay back at the bottom of the mountain? Any practical reason? Don't you think those men who see what he's going to do would interfere? That they would react? And he wants to remove, and don't you think they would try to talk him out of it? Okay, so he's removing what? Every obstacle. Every, every incentive to stop doing this, his obedience is continual. He's determined, he's continuing multiple opportunities to turn around, he didn't do it. It's total. Total obedience by the very fact that he builds, the, builds an altar to burn the body of his son. Remember? It's an ola, a burnt offering. Go up and smoke. He's, he's, not, intending, he's not intending at this moment to stop it. 
He's thinking if he does a total cremation, God is going to resurrect. How, he's, how he figures that, because there's nothing in the Bible up to this point that gives indication that this is happening. Okay? Other than the story of God creating Adam from dust. But there's no other resurrection story so far in history in this regards. So he's lifting the knife. He is just, he's committed to obeying what God has said. Absolutely, totally done with love. This is the part that strikes me, that really kind of strikes me, is how he does this with obedience and there's silence. What's missing in this story? Okay. From, from Abraham's point of view, we're going to get to Isaac in a second because that's true. From Abraham's point of view, there is no objection. He didn't question. Had he ever questioned God in the past? Yes, he did. Lord, why don't you take Eliezer? Lord, why don't you take Ishmael? This time there is none. What's he done? He's grown in the faith. He has come to a point where he's loves, he loves his son. God acknowledged, you love your son, your only son, which that's a no-brainer for us. He loves his son. Oh, by the way, there are some commentaries that I read to, that said this. The reason Abraham was willing to do it is men in those days didn't have affection for their sons. Men were disassociating from their families, and so this wasn't a real challenge. That's a bunch of hogwash because God even said, the son whom you love. Okay, God, God acknowledges, and he says you have to love him. But here's the verse that really strikes me more than any. We are going to go up and we are going to worship. He is still intending to worship this God who is asking him this price. I don't know if I'd be inclined to do that. I'd be inclined to be upset with a God. I might obey out of fear, but I'm not sure in my heart if I would be totally able to say, I worship you, I praise you, I exalt you. I don't have the faith that Abraham had. To go with this in, in a positive frame of mind and challenge, he believed. He believed. Now, you've already mentioned it, okay? Sherry, I think you were the one that mentioned down where he says to the men in verse 5, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and come again to you. He's already given indication. I believe the son is coming back down the mount. I intend to kill him. I intend to burn him. I intend to see what God's going to do. Okay, because this is the promise that God has given. Go to Hebrews with me, the book of Hebrews, and watch how it states it in Hebrews. Chapter 11, New Testament, book of Hebrews, where you have a, a, just a, a brief statement talking about Abraham and his faith. Hebrews chapter 11. It is going to make a comment. Okay. Jump down into verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He that had received the promises offered up his only son, begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting, here's tells us why he did it. Believing, reckoning, uh, you know, the idea of uh, adding it up in his mind, that God was what? Able to raise him up even from fully believed. 
fully believed in some form of a resurrection that was going to take place. And so he's got this faith. He doesn't know, he doesn't have illustration. You and I have got Bible stories to base it upon. He doesn't have that. He has the word of God, the promise of God, totally submits to God, totally surrenders his son, totally believes what God has said in the past. No doubts, no difficulties, no arguments. That's faith. That's admirable faith. That's the type of faith that I want, that I know I struggle with getting. But that's where we should be headed for that direction. That says that type of faith that doesn't get angry or bitter or upset or trying to. And by the way, was Abraham a manipulator in the past? Yes, he was. To try to manipulate with his wife, trying to make things work out for this promised son. But he's come to a point, he's matured to the point after all these years. This son is God's boy. He's a miracle child. He came by a miracle of God. God is going to have to work this out. And he's just walking by faith, walking by faith, believing what God has said that God would do. The response of Isaac, this is what you mentioned here a moment ago, Lloyd. The response of Isaac is, is there's not much stated other than just observations. He honors his God and his father. He, you know, say he's 15, 20 years old. To me, this is commendable. He travels three days to worship God. That's a commendable young, young man's attitude. He's going to go, he's going to worship God. I, I keep on asking myself, and can't get away from it today, is where did he get this love for God that he wanted to worship with his dad? Where did he learn this? Where did he get this hunger? In fact, let's take a step further. He trusts in God and his father. He asks his dad, very, very simply, when they get there, Isaac spake in verse 7 to his father and said, Father, he said, yes, son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they bent, went on both together. He trusts his dad. He's not arguing with his dad. He trusts him totally. There is no fight indicated. There is no resistance. There is nothing as far as an argument beyond this point. There is allowing himself to be bound and to placed on, be placed on the altar. Me? If my dad were to try something like this, I'd be rolling all over the place. Okay? I would somehow pick up steam. I can't move fast, but I could have moved fast in this moment. And this boy doesn't do any of that. Where does this boy get this type of faith? Where does he get this type of, of reverence for God? There's only one obvious answer. His dad. His dad has portrayed such a magnificent, obedient faith that it's rubbed off on his child, on his near-adult child, who is saying, yes, dad. And he's, he's yielding in that whole regard. To me, that's just absolutely amazing, which leads us to this thought. There's rewards that are given. The rewards are very simple here in the text. God rewards Abraham for his faith and his obedience. We know the obvious reward is what? The very first reward that God gives him. Okay, he keeps the son alive. God protects the son from when Abraham is, Abraham is ready to slay the son. God, in his protection, waits until the very last moment, the 11 o'clock hour. He waits, and then all of a sudden they come to a place. He builds the altar, and he stretched forth the knife in verse 10. And the angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here am I. Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. So there's honor in protecting him. There is honor in this regard. 
there is all of a sudden the provision of the lamb. The, the ram, if you would, that shows up. And he's, Abraham lifted up his eyes, verse 13, looked and behold him. Behind him there's a ram in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went, took the ram, offered him for a burnt offering. And he called the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. By, by the way, you caught a couple things there? The, la- the mountain is called what mountain? He calls it Jehovah-Jireh. What's the mountain? We mentioned it earlier. Mount Moriah. What do you know about Mount Moriah? Okay. Okay, this is, this is the mount. This, this whole area here is what was called, this whole region is Mount Moriah. Okay. Do you see on the scale what was there years later? Okay, the Dome of the Rock now. This area was where Solomon builds what? He builds a temple. Farther down on this Mount Moriah over here, do you see what it's called? Who dies there? Okay, Jesus Christ. It's the same spot. It's the same, uh, the same hillside where later on temple sacrifice is done and the sac- sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. I'll take you back to my statement here. God stops Abraham for doing what God himself would do for us. Later on at this very spot, God sacrifices his son for us. He didn't want Abraham to carry it all the way through, but God carries it all the way through. And when his son cries and says, why have you forsaken me? And he could have called the 10,000 angels. He allows him to die because God loves us. So you have this reward in Abraham's life in that regard that he provides the sacrifice, and then he commends Abraham. Abraham is God. He's impacted his son for all eternity. He's impacted generations after that. We already read what Moses writes hundreds of years later where he says, to this day, this area is still called Jehovah-Jireh. It is still an impacting place. We, generations later, still look at this mount with awe. Moses doesn't have the temple. He doesn't know about that temple in the future at this point, that being at that very spot. He just knows this was the place where Abraham sacrificed, and it is a commendable, obedient faith that has impacted us. By the way, does his story impact you and me hundreds and thousands of years later? God uses him. God challenges us through him. Lesson learned very simply. We need to walk by obedient faith. I'll give you reasons why. Because we're going to be tested. You and I, we will be tested. The only thing that's going to carry us through is obedient faith. Trusting God that no matter what this is, no matter how difficult it is, God knows what is best and doing what is right. And will do us right. Number two, you will be influential. If you pass the test, if you do what's right, you will influence others for good for God. If you don't pass the test, if you revolt and rebel against God in the test he gives, you will also influence others, but not good for good and for God. It's like the story I put up here, just a, this story that's told about this farmer who, there he is, he's going out after the storm, he's looking over all the crops in the harvest season, the hail has just come through, it has wiped out all the crops, everything that he's labored for for the last weeks and months, it's gone. 
Everything's gone. He's unsure what he's going to do. He's standing on the top of that hill next to his, his broken down barn now and he stands there with his son who's just in that you know, early teen years and the boy talked about it later. He said it was the biggest, best lesson I ever learned. My dad with tears streaming down his face just stood there and saying, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. He said, no other sermon in my entire life meant as much as that moment at my dad's side. You and I can make a difference by responding the right way, the way that God would have us to respond, and you will be rewarded. Look what God says to Abraham. The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time, and he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. Now that's a repeat of some earlier promise, but he expands upon it. And he says, as the sea which is upon the seashore, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's news. There is more impacting statements. There is a broader uh, promise than before. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now earlier he said, nations who bless you, I will bless and I will curse. Now he's making it clear. You are going to be impacting all the nations, all the world. And he did and he does. Because of his faith. God honors faith. You and I need to honor God by our faith. Opportunity to do that is through prayer. So let's take advantage of just going, praying, then tomorrow living out a life of obedient faith as hard as it is.